You're now listening to episode 82 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hi, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. Brandon Hall and Thomas Costelli here today with Josh Eddington, co-founder of DXE Properties and multifamily syndicator with experience across all aspects of syndication, including acquisitions, asset management, and investor relations. In today's episode, we discuss Josh's take on the multifamily value-add investment strategy, the tax strategies he uses, including the dynamics of using 1031 exchanges as a general partner of a real estate syndication, where he believes we are in the current market cycle, and much more. Josh, thanks for taking the time to come on the show today. Can you give our listeners a bit of information on your background and how you got started in multifamily investing? Sure. Thanks for the invite. It's good to be here. Good to uh, chat with you again and reconnect. Um, My background, I guess it's a more entrepreneurial path. I started back in um, 2012 personally. I I was connected through a bunch of networking to a property manager out in um, Cincinnati, Ohio, where he actually helped source my first deal, which was a distressed 20-unit deal, um, bought as a short sale, um, $175,000. Four units were occupied of the 20, and um, it was basically a bombshell. But I I think I was young enough and dumb enough to jump right in and um, maybe took some lessons along the way, but it ended up being a really successful first deal. And at that point, I was hooked. I, prior to that, I read some books, read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, a lot of, um, probably a lot of books that a lot of people listening to your podcast have touched on and read and reread. Um, but I, I, while doing, while working full time, I kept doing a deal or so a year. Um, at that point, I was working for a software company. Then I transitioned to work for a real estate investment company, um, ultimately leaving them to begin and, uh, co-found my own real estate investment group, DXA. So, you know, that was my start I in the Midwest. And then it's since transitioned to a focus more so in the, in the Southeast. Nice, nice. And I understand you've been involved in all aspects of multifamily from, you know, uh, acquisitions, uh, asset management, investor relations, so on and so forth. And I know you focus on the value edge strategy. Would you be able to give a kind of a brief overview of what the value edge strategy is from high level? Sure, sure. So high level value add, you're taking something that you can improve upon in its simplest form, whether it's an operational issue or more of a physical issue, you're coming in and making a change to that property to enhance its functionality. At the end of the day, commercial property, it's it's valued based on the NOI and a cap rate. So what you're trying to do is purchase that property where it's operating lower, create value, enhance the net operating income. So either increasing income, decreasing expenses, and driving that net operating income number. Um, You know, I I think it comes in a a lot of different forms. I think that the best deals that I've found in its simplest form are the ones with the story. You know, something that's something, whether it's a, there's some real distress behind it, whether it's just a long-term operator that hasn't touched the units that haven't renovated anything that you know you're able to find something that you know has not been passed along and I've invested in it you've invested in it it's another 
professional operator has invested in it and it picked over it three times in the last cycle. But something with some hair attached to it, you know, those are the ones that I get most excited about when it comes to value add. How do you know if you're looking at a value add play versus a cash flow play and kind of along the same coin, why value add over a pure cash flow play? Well, I think these days the term value add gets used very, very loosely. So I, it depends how you define it. I think even a, a class A deal that was built in the last year that's going through lease up, you could make the case that there's value add to it, um, that the operator is needing to fill the units quickly and they're not necessarily pushing to get every last bit of market rent out of it. So your opportunity and value add is to maybe just step in, turn the lease, uh, you know, churn the rent roll and release those units and create value that way, um, that there is that lease to market opportunity. You know, I think that especially now when the value add space is really, really competitive, that the opportunity is really, really in the details. Like you're not going to be able to, like seven years ago, you could look at a deal, probably underwrite it in 30 minutes and know all you need to know in terms of, oh, there's some real meat on the bone here, some real opportunity. Now you really, really need to spend the time to really understand the market, the submarket that it's in, really understand the rents, the potential rents, the ancillary, other income components that are charged to identify if there is value. You know, to that sentiment, and I know it's not where the question's going, but I actually personally believe that there's a level of opportunity not buying up value add right now just because of how competitive it is and really focusing on something that's operating really, really well, is really well capitalized, has really been invested into. And they do have some proof of operating history that you could get behind and see that it's uh, sort of forecastable. Um, feel free to debate. I think you could uh, be contrarian to that, but you know, I, I think that just seeing the market and how it's changed, it's something that I think there could be some relative value in. So you mentioned that you know value add is is used pretty loosely. How do you define it? To me, I every deal that I'm looking at, I'm chasing an IRR over five years. So if I'm looking at a value add deal and I'm going to put in the effort and legwork associated with it, I need that value add deal at least to be a 15 IRR over five years. And what are some value add, like you said, dive into the details, right? So share some of those details with us. What exactly are you kind of looking at to figure out, can I add value to this property? What are some of those common, maybe renovation items or common things that you can do to increase the NOI on the property? So I, I think uh, you could look at it in maybe two sections, um, exterior and interior. So I, I love the deals that you can amenitize. Maybe it's, you know, maybe there's a, a pool that hasn't been touched in a while and there's an opportunity to build, um, just enhance that pool area, add a outdoor um, grill station, hangout space, just liven some outdoor areas. I, I really am a believer that someone's probably rented the unit before they even step into the actual unit. So making that experience up to showing the unit that they're going to live in as impactful as possible is really, really valuable in pushing rents. So, you know, whether it's game rooms or gyms, being able to create those amenities um, are things that I think keep people there, especially younger renters. 
Um, and then on the interior side, it, it ranges. I, I've done $4,000 interior renovations. And then I've also, we just completed a $15,000 unit interior renovation. So it, it could be plank for flooring. It could be a sheet vinyl flooring. Um, it could be just refacing cabinets, resurfacing countertops or replacing countertops with quartz or granite. Um, new lighting package, I, I, I think is always reads well. Um, paint. When you look at 70s, 80s product, you see a lot of yellows and beige. As simple as it is, you know, the background in your room is a nice gray. I, I would paint that in every apartment I could. And I think it just, it makes a dramatic difference. So when you go in and you do these value adds, are the properties that you're acquiring, are they already occupied? And are you turning the tenants over as you're adding value to the property? Or how, how does that work? Do you, do you do it all at once or do you do it in some sort of systematic manner, if that makes sense? Yep. Um, almost always occupied, I'd say. Just one rare exception. And that's maybe the first deal I ever did where it was not occupied. Our approach is for our renovations and our value add plan, we always come in fully capitalized. So we're never going to bank on being able to do these renovations through cash operational cash flow in the first or second year. So we like to be aggressive on that side. If we have availability, we want to move as quickly as we can first on the exteriors, just reface the property. If we're changing the name of the property, we'll do that, give it a new image in the marketplace, and then be as aggressive as possible on, on the interiors. So like a property we just took over, there were three vacants. And it was just more efficient to be able to have those units done all at once in terms of getting new cabinets in there, new appliances. Being able to order all three is just better. You know, I, I think there's a case to be made for taking your time to an extent, making sure that the rents are there before you say, hey, I'm going to renovate all 60 of these tomorrow and then be in a place where, uh-oh, the rents aren't there and you just over-improved or you have to be much more patient with your business plan. But if we can knock out a few right out of the gate and do all the exterior stuff, we'll, we'll definitely jump at that. How do you kind of assess your risk in adding an amenity to the property? You talked about something like common area space, like a game room and things like that. How do you assess whether or not that's going to pay off for you, if that makes sense? Like, like if I go into a property and I see my tenants and I'm talking to them, and I'm like, oh man, a game room is worth a $10,000 investment. How do you feel really confident pulling the trigger on that? Yeah, I think that's a great question with the answer that probably won't totally answer that question. But um, one thing I think that you as an operator or one as an operator can do, and we've done it in the past, is at takeover with whatever welcome package goes out from your property management company, offer a survey, you know, get their take on what they like about the property, what they don't like about the property. You know, would they use a, a dog park or a playground area or a game room or a gym? And, you know, that's like some ancillary information that could be helpful to reinforce any investment like that. To more directly answer it, I think one thing to be mindful of is the cost spread across the number of units. If you're spending $150,000 to put in a pool in a 30-unit community, it's probably not going to pay. You're probably not going to get the return on that investment. But if it's that same cost is across you know, 150 units or 250 units, it's much less of a cost per unit, and you should be able to see that return on investment, or you may be able to more likely see that return on investment. And then lastly, it's it's rental comps. I think it's being as thorough as possible, 
to draw that as little radius as possible, call it three mile radius. And it just look at deals that may be older, maybe newer and say, if I were to add this, how do I stack up in relation to the other end and basically discount your rent that you're aiming for adjusting for the product that you're comparing to? I don't know that there's an exact uh, science though. I think that if you were to look back to some of the better exits and the and there's been many, many, it's been the people that have come in and a lot of the exterior amenity enhancement stuff and spent less on the interior side because they've seen that those amenity enhancement opportunities probably created more value than they thought it might. Yeah, before we jump into the exit, because that's, I think, a great transition, just, I mean, I guess, too, perhaps you have to take into consideration maybe the competitors in the market, what amenities package they have, what the demographics in the market is that come into a play at all? Totally. Um, we're, we're doing a project now. It's, it's, I know we were talking about Charlotte before we, we started here, but it's right in the uptown area of Charlotte. But like walking distance to where the Panthers play, to the Bank of America Tower, a lot of big employers. But it's small one-bedroom apartments and pretty small two-bedroom apartments. So we're, we're really trying to cater to like younger demographic. So much of what we're focused on all site and and we're never going to be able to compete with like the high rise product, but like we're implementing a smart mail station and, and we're doing some smart technology for like putting in work for maintenance requests and just really trying to add different conveniences given the demographics. So I think it's a really good point and it's something we'd probably have less focus on if it were, you know, say an older demographic that's maybe not traveling much. It's going to be home all day. It's just an amenity that they would be that much less likely to use. Guy, guy, you know, a lot of deals that we've been seeing in this cycle are often marketed as, you know, being five to seven years or three to five years. And then, you know, you get into these deals and the value add is completed within the first, you know, one or two years. And all of a sudden the property is, is up for sale. Could you give a little bit of information of how do you know when, when it's time to, to, to finally sell that property for the value add? Um, I don't think there's a right answer. I'm uh, personally a big believer in the the long-term wealth building value associated with holding and operating property for a long time. Um, that said, there's definitely something to be said for this law of diminishing returns to an extent that if you bought a deal and you created an enormous amount of value today, you may have a lot of pent-up equity that could be better used in another deal. Um, so I think there's a case to make for for the exit then. What I'm a big believer in is if, if you could create the right formula where you're optimizing that property and you're really cash flowing very well and you created that value and you're still realizing it at the NOI line um, and at the cash flow line, I, I say hold. I say recapitalize, um, whether it's a traditional recapitalize, refinance, whatever it may be, and redeploy equity elsewhere. That said, I've sold deals in two or three years where I just, we owned a deal in Panama City, uh, Florida. That was a good value add deal. It was operating, but we created a lot of value. And I just wanted it. Value was much higher than we were realizing from a cash flow perspective. And two, I just was not a believer in the market for the long, long term. So we wanted to get in and get out. I, I think, uh, Something to be really mindful of is the debt that you take on when you enter any of these value-add deals. If you're looking to create a lot of value and you put a 12-year loan with yield maintenance on it, um, 
an exit in the second year is going to could be a real challenge um, if you don't have buyers that want to assume that low leverage loan. Got it, guys. So we we do have to move on to some tax strategies. Of course, this is a tax accounting podcast, and just wanted to to, to get an idea of what kind of tax strategies do you use uh, when you enter in these deals on for yourself and your investors. Um, we do itemize things like FF and BE, and we associate land value to the land, the building improvements um, to be able to get a little bit more aggressive on that side, on the depreciation side. Um, from a personal perspective, I, I do try to invest. Well, I'm always investing into every deal that I do where I, I just, from a personal perspective, it's helpful, especially being a real estate professional. I could use that depreciation to offset my income. So that's something that I, as a real estate professional, I'm always going to keep doing because I, I just think it's it's useful. Absolutely. The real estate professional status is huge. Um, and if you have the ability to do it, um, we'd always, we always recommend it um, for the most part. Uh, have you ever considered doing like a 1031 on one of these deals? Yes, I've been involved in a few, both on the as a professional career side as an employee, and then also myself. I was in, involved in a project with a 1031, and we're going to look to do one, if not two, this year. I, I think we have a bunch of investors that, frankly, have invested and don't want the money back. They're not. I mean, eventually they will, but they have a very long-term thought process with that money. They like the exposure in real estate. They see it as a a hedge to other market options. Um, and, and they want the opportunity to keep trading up into other deals that we do. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a believer in it. I think a lot of our investors that have been a part of something larger like the benefit of being associated with a deal where they get the scale and associated safety with having a larger community that they own a piece of. So just to be clear, you will, as the deal sponsor, you'll do the 1031 on behalf of your investors. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Nice. That's awesome. We, we don't run into a lot of sponsors that are willing to run a 1031 exchange. They want to close the deal out and call it a day, pass all the cash back to their investors, which some investors want, some don't. Um, and the ones that don't, they want 1031, but then it gets super complicated if the syndication itself is not going to run that 1031 exchange. You have to you can, as an investor, you can drop into a tick ownership with the syndicate, but now we're incurring insane legal fees to get this yeah. thing done. And so that's really cool that you provide that, that sort of an opportunity to your investors. I'm sure that that, that alone keeps a lot of people on board with you. Yeah. I mean, this will be the first this year that we do where it was a smaller group. And frankly, it's a lot easier when you have a smaller group. It's, it's often much more challenging. I can only imagine if you have 30 people coordinating are you gonna join or not join this it gets complicated and buying out and restructuring before the sale difficult but I, I, you know I think there's there could be a lot of value in it so yeah we're, we're excited about it this year that's great that's great are there any strategies tax strategies that you use on the personal side of the coin anything that you can talk to us about that you've employed maybe over the last few years or, or last year? No, I mean, I do, you know, I, I own my own business. So I, I, maybe there's a number of things that I'm able to write off that I don't know that how that's not a particularly advanced tax strategy. Um, no, I, I can't say I do. I, I welcome your advice though. If there's something I'm missing. <laughs> you claim real estate professional status. Are you, you real estate professional? Very nice. yeah, that, that's a good, that's a good one for a lot of people. Yeah. So something that we see with a lot of our sponsors, syndicate clients, they will qualify as a real estate professional. And they'll be able to write off the like 
the the loss in excess of the capital that they raised. So if I raised $3 million on a $10 million property and I go do a cost sec study, get three, $3.5 million in first year bonus depreciation, if I've structured the deal correctly, I might be able to take as a deal sponsor a $500,000 loss in my own tax returns and if I qualify as a real estate professional. So we, we've seen a few of our sponsor clients do that type of thing and uh, to, to some good success with it. Interesting. No, that's... Uh... I like it. That's a new one for me, though. <laughs> we'll go one quick question before we, we get into the, the last few questions here. And this is a wild card question, so we could absolutely cut it if you want. Um, where do you <laughs> think we are in the current market cycle? You know, Where do you think we stand? Oh, um, I think my feeling is maybe more moderated than some. I think that there's too much multifamily specific. I just think there's too much demand for there to be like a complete blow up. My take is that it's going to be really, really difficult for sponsors in general to find good deals because there's going to be that that many fewer of those opportunities. So I, I think you know you're just going to have to pick off those one, two, three deals that you really believe in and and just get behind and and be sound. But I think it's going to be a competitive environment for for years. I, I don't think rates are going to rise that dramatically, you know, that quick, and it's going to keep debt cheap and and multifamily is going to be seen like it is now as a pretty safe place to money as a whole. Um, you know, that, that's my take. We're clearly higher. You know, we're certainly closer to the ninth than the first inning, um, if we were to put it that way. But I, I just I just don't see a complete collapse. We're going to keep buying. We're going to be selective. And, you know, we only did one multifamily deal this year. And it's going to probably not be more than one or two in 2020. But we're going to be underwriting the same three, four deals a week to find those one or two good ones that we believe in. That actually brings me to a question I actually forgot to ask earlier. Um, you know, you, looking at your website, I know I've listened to webinars you were on in the past and you focus on a very well-defined investment strategy. And, you know, there's plenty of people out there who are all over the place, whether it be self-storage, multifamily, they're bouncing back and forth to all these different types of deals. Why, why focus on a single investment strategy, a well-defined investment strategy versus, you know, kind of be more opportunistic? You know, I don't have an issue with uh, jumping into invest different investment sectors within real estate. I, I think that there's certainly a case to make for different areas. I, I think, uh, you know, industrial is obviously very hot. I, I think that there's a case to make for mobile home Parks also, especially, you know, there's demand for it. There's, you know, there's going to be a demand for that forever. Um, and an enormous amount of the population lives in them. I, it's interesting. Everything I read about it, I'm always, my ears always perk up. Um, it's just what we know, I, especially now. I think when you are closer to the, you know, end of a cycle or, or sort of top pricing wise, I think you really, really want to focus on what you know and limit the mistakes um, that are unknowns, you know, limit the unknown unknowns and, and focus on the known knowns or the known unknowns. So you could just minimize risk as much as possible. But, you know, in, in the same breath, we as a company and my partner has a development background. We've both redeveloped, he's developed from scratch, but I've redeveloped the project and we will continue to look at opportunistic developments, but all within the, you know, multifamily residential rental space. I have no interest in condo development or at least at this point in the cycle. 
Yeah, Josh, your sentiment on where we're headed in 2020 with the market in general is pretty in line with Douglas Duncan. So he's a chief economist at Fannie Mae, and we interviewed him back on podcast episode 72. We did a deep dive into the current stage of the economy and what we expect to happen in 2020. But one of the things, one of our big takeaways from that episode was that he thought that the demand just is so overwhelmingly higher than supply right now for real estate, pretty much across the board, and that he he anticipates a slowdown in Q4 2020, but that real estate's going to be that rock that really keeps us out of a recession because there's such a big gap between demand versus supply. So pretty much right in line with what you said. And I mean, this guy has access to, I shouldn't say this guy, Douglas, Mr. Duncan, <laughs> he's a very top-notch guy, has access to incredible data, right? So if he's saying those types of things and you're right in line with that, you must be on the right track. You must yeah, be on I mean, right. <laughs> he's smarter than me, so I'd listen to him. But um, I'd say, you know, I, I think the other piece of that, to his point, is which I think is healthy for real estate as a whole. Lending's been far more responsible than it has leading up to the last recession, especially on the construction lending side. So, you know, you're seeing, unless you're like a premier borrower, you know, lending's limited for construction loans. So 70% often is the most leverage you're going to be able to get loan to cost. So you're bringing a lot of equity and it's, you know, it's keeping developers a bit more I think, honest in, in the development projects that they're taking on. So that's probably a good thing for the market as a whole. 100%. So we kind of turn into the last few questions here. We do ask everybody what their favorite tech is, but I want to get a little bit more specific today. You know, being a multifamily syndicator, is there any specific technology or software you use in that space that you absolutely love and that's like really helps you do your business? So um, I'm going to give you an organizational tool, which is Airtable. So Airtable, I like a lot. It's almost like a, I guess I'll call it Excel on steroids, but it allows you to drag over different files, different reports, and drop them into a completely configurable spreadsheet-like environment. So we use it for managing our pipelines. We put each of our rent comps per market and submarket in a different table within Airtable. And it's just great that it's there. It's cloud-based. We're always able to reference, you know, that information that we created. And I think, uh, I like it. We're going to use their table for a long time. Nice. Nice. You, you ever use any like those, uh, investor management softwares, like to manage like the document flow between you and, and the investors you work with? We do. We use Appfolio. It's a whole range of investment management softwares out there, but, um, it's been helpful. It's been helpful. And I think investors appreciate it. It's a secure place to just get out information. We run distributions through ACH that pair with the investment management solution. So I, I like it. Nice, nice. And uh, what, what is the best way for our listeners to get in contact with you or learn more about what you're doing, what you have going on? Sure. So they can go to our website, dxeproperties.com. And there you'll find my contact information. You could shoot me an email or you can uh, contact directly through that website. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks for taking the time to come on the show today, Josh. It was a great discussion on value add, something we haven't really focused on on this podcast specifically. And I think you, you added a lot of value. So thanks again. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, guys. Add a lot of value. See, we're in the market for value add podcast guests. This is a success. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it, Josh. Have a good one. Right. So here we are. We're in the debrief segment of the value add podcast with Josh Eddington. 
Um, we're going to kick it right off. Brandon, what'd you think? I thought it was great. I thought it was great. Uh, I think that the number one thing that I have taken away from this, you know, Josh said at one point in the podcast that you're not going to find the value add deals that you used to. And he specifically said that if you're spending 30 minutes underwriting a deal, then you're going to be missing out on a whole lot of potential value add opportunity. And that resonated with me because I spend like 15 minutes underwriting deals around Raleigh and I have not closed on any deal for like a year and a half. So I was sitting here like, crap, man, Josh is speaking to my soul and I need to spend a little more time digging into things to see if I can add value. Granted, I'm like looking at four units and he's looking at much larger properties, but still it was a good takeaway. Yeah, exactly. You know, following up on, on what you said too, is on how detailed you have to be in this, uh, at this point in the cycle, um, it's certainly not an easy way to find deals. So uh, you definitely have to dig deep. And also, no, I really like what you said about Airtable too. We're definitely gonna have to check that out. Like the advanced spreadsheets. I know there's a ton of stuff out there. And if you're going to be, like Josh said, if you're going to be analyzing all these deals, you have to be super detailed, just another tool to help out. And on the, on the tax strategy side of things, it's it's good to hear that he's he's a practicing real estate professional. He uses that status. He invests in all his deals. So he's getting that depreciation. Um, being able to write it off against his ordinary income, which is which is great. Yeah, I also thought it was really cool that he, as a sponsor, is looking at. Granted, this first one, but he's looking at ten thirty one in the entire syndicate, which is really neat because we have a lot of clients that invest in syndicated deals. And like I said in the podcast, these guys just close down at the end and then push all the gain back to the investors. So it's really nice if you're an investor that where you don't need the capital and you would prefer that that capital just be continuously reinvested into the next deal. It's nice to be able to team up with a sponsor where that becomes part of their strategy uh, so that you can participate in those deals. Cause you can still 1031. It's just, it becomes very complicated if the sponsorship itself is not going to 1031 the deal. You as the investor can still do it. Um, listen to our Matt Rappaport episode. I don't remember what, what episode number that was off the top of my head, but check that episode out because we do talk about that. Um, drop and swaps and how to, how to run 1031 exchanges if you are an investor in a syndicated deal, but it's a lot easier, a lot less costly if the sponsorship itself is going to do a 1031 exchange. So it's really cool to hear that he was exploring those options for his investors. Yeah, absolutely. That was episode 75, um, the one with Matt Rappaport. Um, and the one thing that kind of take away on the 1031 exchange side is that Josh did say it's a smaller group. So I would imagine that if you're if you're going to be involved in the 1031 exchanges, you probably got to find those sponsors who are really taking the time to develop and be really specific and really, really uh, deliberate with the type of investors they take on so that those type of things can occur. Because if you go with that shotgun approach, I'll take anybody who is willing to give me money, you might have 30 investors and then trying to do the 1031, like Josh said, and like we've... Uh, I've seen some stuff like that before as well, where it's just it's not possible, or you're going to run into a high amount of legal costs, like you said. So, but we do have a question today, and that question is from Kyle. And Kyle asks, "I saw you guys are doing a tax and legal summit. Uh, why should I attend the tax and legal summit? Can you give me one reason why I should attend? What's the biggest reason?" What a great question! Why should you attend? Okay, so we've gone and we've spoken, Tom and I have spoken and a couple other people at our firm have spoken at quite a few conferences, real estate conferences over the past few years. All the real estate conferences, they're all great. And they've, they're in person, they're networking, the networking's phenomenal. But what we have found is that the tax and the legal pieces of those conferences are really underplayed, but they also are, you know, you know they're like a 45 minute speaking slot and 
they're really jam packed with people. People want to know about tax and legal stuff. And there's really just not, you, you can't cover everything that an investor needs to know to be successful in a 45 minute slot. So what Tom and I have been trying to figure out is, well, can we run a conference that focuses on tax and legal? And then we linked up with Dan Hanford, who runs the virtual MFIN summits. And he, he kind of gave us the confidence that we could do this virtually. So the tax and legal summit, it's two full days of just tax and legal strategies for real estate investors. The ticket prices today are $197, but you can use code RECPA to drop the ticket price to $99. And I guarantee you one tax session will pay for the $99. But there's going to be, I think, around 32 sessions, 30 to 32 sessions. We've got two really awesome keynote speakers that we're going to tell everybody about later. Uh, but you're going to come and you're going to learn all about how you can better tax optimize your portfolio and how to protect your assets, right? Your, your wealth <laughs> over time as you scale it up. I don't know. Do you have anything else to add to that, Tom? Yeah, I mean, when you when you think about it, and uh, and I think you, Brandon, you think you pointed this out to me was that uh, when you're when you're thinking about tax and legal advice, you're paying anywhere from three hundred to eight hundred fifty dollars an hour, you know, for for this advice. And right now, you can get the tickets for ninety nine bucks. Just like I, I don't see, I mean, it's almost like a no brainer. I mean, why not? Why not? Get, like, you're going to have the recordings after the sessions. They will not be sold. So the only way you can actually get access to those recordings is by getting a ticket before the event. So. That's key too. Great point. So we are recording every session and you, by purchasing a ticket, will get access to the recordings, but that's the only way to get access to the recordings. So even if you can't attend on February 29th and March 1st, uh, you should still go. And the event's totally virtual. So there's really no excuse unless you're like budgeting and you just can't fork out the 99 bucks, which I totally get because my wife and I just set our annual budget for 2020. But Look, if you can spend the 99 bucks, you should 100% pick up a ticket and be there. We've had since launch, we launched on uh, we launched all our marketing December 19th. We've had multiple relatively high profile folks reach out to us and say this is what all real estate investors need to attend, and it's just nice getting that sort of positive feedback loop that Tom and I were were hoping would happen but not really expecting. It was just nice to kind of get that confirmation and We've had a couple big, big companies reach out wanting to sponsor it too. So it's going to be a pretty cool event. You should definitely come. Uh, if you don't like it, I'll give you your 99 bucks back. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, hopefully that answers your question, Kyle. Um, again, you can get that taxandlegalsummit.com, promo code RECPA. And remember, if you want to have us answer your question, uh, you can go to www.therealestatecpa.com slash podcast, drop your question in that box, and uh, we may just answer it here live on the show. So um, that's all for today, and uh, see you at the Tax and Legal Summit or in the next podcast. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.